let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank thee for the privilege of bringing a part of what you have enabled us to earn or what has been given to us or what we have and place it here at this communion table and ask a blessing upon it that its use may be in keeping with your will, that it may bring honor to your name and help to many people. We pray, O Lord, that thou who hast caused all the scriptures to be written for our learning, that thou wilt grant that those of us who listen and hear to them may gain insight from them so that we can place into life each day the truth which we have learned. And to that end, we now ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts might be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. What we're talking about today and what will begin the first of eight messages which I hope to be preaching here in this chapel have to do with the Beatitudes. They, of course, are attitudes that are given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ toward life and our responsibility to him. I purposely began by reading to you from the fourth chapter of Matthew that Jesus came preaching. Jesus went all through Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. We happen to live in a time in which gospel preaching is coming under some rather bad press reports from certain people in the religious press. We are sometimes given the idea that maybe the preaching of the word of God ought to be put aside in favor of some more creative way of worshiping Sunday by Sunday. Now, I'm sure that the Lord knows, and I say this reverently, that uh, we ought to always be finding ways of enhancing our opportunities for worship. But I am equally sure that sometimes our innovations go a little bit too far. And I think that we ought to remember the injunctions I read of, in C.S. Lewis's book, um, Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. He was, uh, C.S. Lewis is talking about prayer and uh, public worship and uh, different attitudes toward worship. And he said about certain avant-garde clergy that they should remember that the injunction of Scripture is, feed my sheep, not experiment with my rats. And I think C.S. Lewis uh, has a very good point that we can go too far in our experimentation. Jesus came preaching. He preached in synagogues, and when the synagogues became so full of people, he went out of the synagogue onto the hillside. He went throughout all of Galilee. The people from the ten cities that are called Decapolis all began to throng to hear him. Back in Jesus' day, of course, there were no television, there was no radio, and Jesus could speak with an authority and with a way that even his enemies had to go back and report to their superiors was something that was really out of this world. And so people came in great crowds to hear him preach. And what did he preach to them? The first message that Jesus preaches to them has to do with the word repent. And it's interesting enough that when he ends his earthly ministry and his presence is taken from, from his followers and he gives them a great commission to go into all the world 
he commanded them that they should go and preach repentance and the remission of sins to all nations. Now that gives us a starting place for our new study, repentance. The word repentance does not mean what most of us assume it means, which is just sorry for our sins. It's deeper than all of that. That element is, of course, in repentance, but something deeper is there. The word repentance means a changed mind, just like a, a cocoon is here, and out of it evolves a butterfly, a brand new creation. So repentance speaks about a changed mind and a changed outlook, and this is essential to any understanding of the Sermon on the Mount or the instructions that Jesus is about to give. Now that I can remember very well being in the city of London during one drizzly February afternoon, I had been to the office of a friend, and I had been reading in the British Museum about Karl Marx. I was doing a study of Marx. I knew that he was buried in London at Highgate Cemetery, and so I took a ten-penny ride on a bus clear across London and out to Highgate Cemetery. When I went in the gates of the cemetery, I said to one of the custodians there, where is the grave of Karl Marx? He said, you just walk that way, you won't be able to miss it. And when I started walking that way, I wondered whether this guard knew what he was talking about, but I kept on walking. Then I noticed that other people were walking in that direction. And then finally, over all of the tombstones and the markers, I could see a big shaft of granite that went high up into the air, and on top of it was an enormous buff of Karl Marx. It was made out of bronze. His eyes were set back in a determined way, and he had big cheeks like a Santa Claus. He had a beard, long hair. I walked over to his grave and read the inscription on the marble shaft. I saw flowers that people had brought from all over the world, literally, to put there at his grave. You know what was carved? These words. The philosophers have only interpreted history in various ways. The point is to change it. The point is to change it. I agree with Karl Marx that the point is to change history, but I do not agree with the method that he would go about changing history, which is a method that has to do with hatred and violence. Jesus would agree with him that the point is to change history, but it is to be changed by changing men inside, by spiritual persuasion and the power of God's Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus means when he speaks of repentance and a changed mind. By the time he delivers this discourse here on the mountain, he had probably already seen Nicodemus and had told that strange religious leader that in order to understand what he was preaching about the kingdom of heaven, he would have to be born from above, a new birth, a new outlook, spiritually toward life. Now then, these multitudes having come, having heard his word about repent, have a changed mind, what will that changed mind be like? Well, it will be a total reversal of what the world thinks will make people happy. The world does not look upon things like Jesus looked upon them. The world would never say, blessed are the poor in spirit. The world would say, blessed are the pushers, 
for they get on in the world. The world, instead of saying, blessed are the meek, would say, blessed are the hard-boiled, for they will finally get their way. The world would say, blessed are those who complain. The world would say, blessed are the slave drivers, they get results. The world, instead of saying, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy, would say, never give a sucker an even break. This is the attitude of most of the world, an attitude which Jesus reverses by his teaching here to a new mind and a new heart about his kingdom. Now then, of course, all of this has to do with the pursuit of happiness. In the Constitution of the United States of America, Thomas Jefferson, who is largely the writer of it, got a great bold idea in which he said that we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we would agree that we do have a right to pursue happiness, but where shall we find happiness? All of these multitudes that I've just told about who came out to hear Jesus preaching, they wanted happiness. They wanted joy and contentment in their hearts, and so they came to hear him preaching and teaching. And what does Jesus tell them? I'm sure that there were many poor people in the group. I'm sure that there were many people who were diseased because they would want to get to him for healing. I'm sure that there were many broken-hearted people who were there. These were people who did not have much freedom because the Romans were ruling over their lands. And yet what does Jesus tell them about happiness and how they can find it? Well, said Jesus, when he looks at this multitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. For there, said Jesus, is the kingdom of heaven. This is a declaration of a blessing. First of all, we go back to this word kingdom. A king is one who rules over a domain. This morning when we came in this church and we said the Lord's Prayer, we said some very important things. I wonder if we meant them. We said to Almighty God, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. Your rulership over everything, may it come. May it be done here in me, in Montreat, in 1969, just like it's done in heaven. Did we really mean that? Did we really mean that? Thy kingdom come. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. I wonder if we really want him to rule over us that way. But you know, if we follow him in true discipleship, we have to follow the same way that he himself took. You remember what he said in the Garden of Gethsemane? He said, not my will, but thy will be done. Father, if it is thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not thy will, not my will, but thy will be done. Now that's important. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And so we come across this word that has to do with the poor in spirit, the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Now do we really want him to rule? Now, what difference would it make if he really ruled in our lives? It'd make a lot of difference. 
Love thy neighbor as thyself. <laughs> what if your neighbor is black? Does it apply? Tom Skinner preached one of the greatest sermons I ever heard in my life in Anderson Auditorium this summer, that black man. He used some words that Karl Marx would have approved of. He talked about being revolutionary. He talked about being radical. But he applied them in the sense that Jesus is revolutionary and Jesus is radical and Jesus is, is subversive in that he overturns the standards of the world. And Tom Skinner said, if you are truly converted and you put your treasure up in heaven, then why are you so worried about your real estate values when that black man moves next door? Yeah, that really gets where the hair is short, doesn't it? But it's the truth. Thy kingdom come. Well, you would have to have a new mind to look at things that way, wouldn't you? A new mind. A mind that would see things the way Jesus sees them. The kingdom of heaven's way of looking at it. Secondly, Jesus talked about the poor in spirit. Now, what does this mean? I used to think it meant something like Uriah Heap. Someone who was always walking around like he was deprecating himself into the dust. This is not what it means. Jesus knew that there were poor people out there, economically poor, but also people who were poor inside. And Jesus knew that these people had a great need, and he knew that that need could be met in him. The poor in spirit, he said, would inherit the kingdom of heaven. And we have to have sympathy for these people who are poor physically and people who are poor in spirit as well. It's possible to be poor physically and not be poor in spirit. It's possible to be rich and not be poor in spirit. We need to deal with both sides of the coin. And Jesus does here. The poor in spirit, says he, are those who are detached from possessions or things so that they may be attached to God. Now, this is important. I have known a few people of great wealth who were really detached from their wealth. Their riches did not seem to affect them. There was no haughty, arrogant spirit about them. They held loosely the great treasures which they had, and they were teachable and amenable to what God would do in and through them. There are other people, other people whose wealth causes them to have a false estimate of greatness. They become arrogant and proud. Samuel Johnson once walked through a rich man's home and he looked at it and said, these things make it hard for a man to die. You've got a lot of beauty here. They make it hard for you to die. We can become proud as a result of our wealth. Winston Churchill, who had a way with words that few people have ever found with words, used to have a running battle with Sir Stafford Cripps, a wealthy, powerful, influential man in Britain. And one time when they were walking out of the House of Commons and had just been through a, a blistering battle together verbally, and, and Sir Stafford Cripps in his pride and arrogance had been so unbending, and Churchill saw him go by, and Churchill turned to one of his friends and pointed to Sir Stafford Cripps and said, There but for the grace of God goes God. <laughs> well, it's a good point for a rich man to remember. 
there, but for the grace of God goes God. I was trying to explain to a rich man one time about some Christian organizations in which he might invest his money. You know what he did? He put his arm around me like this and he said, let's take them over. And I said, you can't take them over. And he was surprised. I said, you can't buy them. But he thought he would buy them, just like he would buy a little company someplace. And sometimes riches do this to us. Riches can create in us an arrogance of spirit. And so Jesus is always difficult, uh, has difficult, powerful sayings about rich people. He says it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go into heaven. And that's frightening. And all of us in America come pretty close to being rich. I mean, those of us who are Presbyterian, white, middle-class people. We've got a lot of things. We have to get metrical for our dogs, practically, because they're getting too fat. We have electric toothbrushes. There are many people in the world that all of this luxury doesn't go to, and we have a responsibility to these people. The French went through a hideous revolution because they failed to recognize this, and the church there failed in its responsibility. I clipped from my notebook when I was doing some reading from La Bruyere, one of the great Frenchmen who was in the court of Louis XIV, but not a person who was enamored by it. La Bruyere looked out and saw the, the peasants of France, and this is how he described them. One sees certain solemn animals, male and female, scattered over the country, dark and livid and scorched by the sun, attached to the earth that they dig up and turn over with invincible persistence. They have a kind of articulate speech. And when they rise to their feet, they show a human face. And indeed, they are men and women. At night, they retire to dens where they live on black bread, water, and roots. They save others the toil of sowing and plowing and garnering in order to live. And thus, they deserve not to lack the bread that they have sown. France was not willing to cope with this poverty, and so it went through a bloodbath in the 18th century. We in America need to face up to this, and our church certainly has a responsibility here. But there is also a danger involved in our social concern. We can be so concerned about society that we fail to remember that what Jesus is addressing his message to is an individual who must have a per personal encounter with him that means a brand new mind. Let me read you what one of the big social gospelers has had to say about his experience. He says, I have been an enthusiast for the social gospel. For years I have boasted my freedom in proclaiming that message, and I do not believe that anyone has been more moved by it. But the question I've been asking myself is this. Have I been as anxious about changed men as a changed environment? I do not think of the efforts for a redeemed man and a redeemed society as hostile to each other. Now I make the statement conscious of both needs. Once I made it and forgot the needs of man's redemption. There is a need for an emphasis where we've not been placing it. Let's be honest, as I'm trying to be. Has it not been easier to be noisy about some social injustice than to get right on with the Bible and prayer and coming to a knowledge of God in Christ, the only ones who can really change men or things? Some of the most superficial thinking in the world is about social problems as indicated by some daring pronouncement, I would rather go to jail than go to war, as though that were really getting at the root of the matter. We get out our petitions against the mistreatment of Negroes, 
But deep down in our hearts, we never love them, and we never will, not until our hearts are changed. With every social program must go a personal discovery of God, but we're too lazy to dig down into our own hearts to be sure we have it, and so the sands and the floods wash it away. That's Bishop Ivan Lee Holt, a great leader in the Methodist Church. Now then, we do have a responsibility to society to do what we can for the alleviation of human misery and suffering, but we have a responsibility to be sure that our priorities are rightly allocated, and that is, number one, that we preach as Jesus preached, repentance, a changed mind that he might become Lord over a life. And when we preach that, we mean that the poor in spirit are blessed and happy because they know their need of him and because their lives have been given to him. This reverses human standards. Last week or so ago, you all read in the papers, I'm sure, about the big rock festival up at Woodstock in New York at Bethel. Uh, there's the name of the town. 400,000 young people, most of them between the ages of 16 and 30, gathering to hear what is called acid rock, hard rock music that you listen to under some hallucinogenic drug. According to Time and Newsweek, 90% of the people there were smoking marijuana. There was abandon and freedom as far as sexual morality was concerned. The social scientists look at all of this and they wonder, what is this telling us? When 400,000, I guess that's the largest live audience in American history, what are they saying? Maybe they are saying to us that wall-to-wall -wall carpet and split-level houses is not what they want. Maybe they're looking for a challenge. And maybe if we came to them with this powerful word of authority which Jesus brought and preached that those who are poor in spirit, who recognize their need of him and let him become Lord of their life, can have a new life in him, a brand new way of looking at men and society and sex and life's things, maybe it'd work. Maybe many of them would turn in a saving faith toward him. Let me tell you in closing of one man that I saw do this. Three weeks ago, I was in Miami, Florida. I saw a young fellow that I hadn't seen since he was 12 years old. He's the son of one of America's most distinguished political leaders. He came to a church where I was preaching. When the service was over, he came up and he said, I need to talk with you, and he had tears in his eyes. He's 27 years old. He's not married. He's rich. He is a graduate of Princeton. He is a graduate of law school. He has served his time in the Navy. We went aside that afternoon, and we began to talk, and he said, God is trying to say something to me. He said, you, you know how I've always been. He said, well, I got interested as a result of a circle of friends that I had in ESP and psychic phenomena. He said, this led me into a lot of 
strange people that I ran into. And he said about six months ago here in Miami, I walked down the street and passed by an antique shop and I saw a vase in the window that I wanted to see. So I went inside. He said the lady behind the counter had a German accent. She's a heavy woman up in her 50s. And he said, I told her that a force field had magnetically drawn me into her shop. And so she answered in the jargon that people of the occult talk with. So I said to her, I see that we have something in common, our interest in the occult. And she said, yes, I was vitally interested in it until God saved me and Christ transformed my life. And he said, I was shocked at this kind of talk. And so I said, what do you mean? She said, why don't you sit down and we'll talk about it. She told of her experience in Germany and her interest in, in all of this type of thing. And then how finally through a reading of the scriptures she had had a new mind given to her that was not conjured up by the occult, not induced by drugs, but something that had been brought into her life by the simple surrender of her mind and will to Christ. Well, John was fascinated, and so he went back to see her again and again. And then he said, God began to move in on me. He'd always had a fondness for pretty women. He tried to pick up a United Airlines stewardess. Turns out she was a Christian. And she talked to him about Christ. And the same business of a personal relationship to Christ and a new life came up. This was a shock to him. Well, his German friend had to go back to Germany on a, to buy some stuff for her import shop. She said, John, I'd almost cancel my trip to Germany because I feel that you're very close to a surrender of your life to the Lordship of Christ. He said, no, you're going back. He said, God will look out for me. And he said that when she left, he actually had a sort of feeling of freedom and abandon that he was glad that she was going away because now he was going to really kick up his heels and go back to his old way of living. But then he said, you came here, and my grandmother suggested that we come to church today, and I haven't been in a long time, so I came. And he said, I'm afraid. I said, what are you afraid of, John? He said, I'm afraid I'm about to be converted. Well, I began to talk to him. He said, can I keep back part of my life? Do you have to give everything to Christ? And I said, yes, you have to give everything to him. This, of course, doesn't mean you have to be a preacher or go in a monastery or anything like that. But what it does mean is that you will obey him and his values will become your values. And that radical change which he demands will come into your life. And we discussed this at length. And then John said these words to me. He said, I want to put in some qualifiers. I said, John, you can't qualify it. And I read to him the story of the rich young ruler. He reminded me of him. And then he said, but what if I fail? What if I do surrender my life to Christ? And then later on, I'm tempted and I sin. And I said, let's just talk about right now. Once you become his, you're his problem, and he'll correct your life. He'll discipline you as you let him discipline you. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship to this person of Jesus Christ. It's personal. Well, he thought, and he said, but I'm afraid I can't hold out. He'd done a lot of wicked things, 
I remembered an old revival song they used to sing in Texas, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. Weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to greet you, oh, for grace to love him more. And the second stanza says this, we were driving down West Flagler Street. I said that says, let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to know your need of him. And driving down the street, he reached over and grabbed my hand and he said, touch me and his eyes filled with tears. That man was converted soundly that day. He's called me, I guess, five times long distance. He wants to know what this passage of Scripture means and what that passage of Scripture means. He's taking this seriously. Now then, the challenge is this about a new mind and a new heart. Jesus commanded that repentance should be preached. Repentance is a new mind a needy spirit, someone who feels and knows his need of God, is blessed and happy because God meets that need and gives him the whole kingdom of heaven. Let us stand. Lord God, we thank you for our Savior that he came preaching and teaching. You know how difficult it is for us to wrestle with all of the implications of these strong, powerful, radical words that we've looked at so briefly this morning. We pray that the Holy Spirit may cause us to think about them for all of our lifetime, so that we, knowing our need of you, may be willing to give our hearts to you. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with you all now and forevermore. Amen.